Probably like many of you, there are several blogs that I check into every once in a while. One of those that I read is by Magri de Vega, who is the senior minister of Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida. He's a generation younger than I am, has a thoughtful, sincere perspective with evidence of deep faith and compassionate regard for others. He'd fit in well here, actually. Anticipating the Martin Luther King Jr. commemoration, here's how he began his post this last week. One of the first churches I served after graduating from seminary was a small rural congregation in the Deep South. I was young and eager to please and still somewhat oblivious to the realities of ministry in the real world. Within the first few months of my arrival, we scheduled a congregation-wide cleanup day for the church. Parishioners gathered to pick up branches and rake pine needles and trim overgrown bushes. Toward the end of the workday, I placed the last of the debris into the pickup truck of one of the church members, whom I'll call Ben, so that we could call it off to the burn pile for incineration. Ben's stern, commanding personality effused authority as a leader in the church. With the truck loaded, he stepped into the driver's seat in the front cab as I opened the passenger's side to sit next to him. No, Ben said in a mumbling drawl. Minorities sit in the back. I looked at him as he turned the key in the ignition. He looked the other way out the window. I didn't know him well enough to know if he was joking. If he was, then he had an odd way of teasing someone he barely knew. And if he wasn't, then he had an odd way of broaching a sensitive subject with the person serving as his pastor. Either way, the last thing this young, eager-to-please preacher wanted to do was fan a firestorm with such a powerful person in the church, even if he was joking. So, for better or worse, I climbed into the bed of the truck with the debris. To be honest, it was a stunning and somewhat painful moment. But then, in retrospect, I I actually feel fortunate that episodes like this have been very rare in my life. I recognize that many people have had to overcome barriers far greater than mine. African-Americans throughout history, Japanese-Americans in the 1940s, American Muslims since September 11. Women have suffered from inequality in the workplace. Gays and lesbians have struggled for equal rights. Now, I don't really know how Magri identifies racially or ethnically. He is not Caucasian. And clearly, from Ben's point of view, he didn't belong in the front seat, but back with the debris in the truck bed. Now, a question comes to mind, given the 
theme of today. Who did Ben see when Magri opened the passenger side door? Did he see his pastor? Did he see something else, first of all? What mattered most to him in his seeing? This issue of seeing dogs, all of us, that is, seeing the world and its inhabitants myopically, mostly, I think, we have no clear idea of what we're looking at, especially when we're looking into the face of another person. We bring our biases and predispositions to every new circumstance. We can't help this. If we've developed some self-awareness, we understand we have this limitation. It's very hard to remain vigilant and open to new information, even if we say we're on the lookout for it. Consider this. I can't know all of the reasons each of you came this morning, but I can tell you that one of my objectives is to present Jesus Christ, to lift him up, as it were, so all who've come might get a good look at him. Now, what each of you sees is another matter altogether. That will be conditioned by your history and expectations, and these vary dramatically from person to person. The image up there in the mosaics may or may not be useful in this moment. I could imagine that going either way, actually. I take comfort that, as the story is told, even John the Baptist had this problem. As we heard in the Gospel lesson a moment ago, when Jesus walked into view, John says, Here is the Lamb of God, but then adds, I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed. In other words, John didn't have a clear picture of who would be following him. Jesus was something of a surprise. And actually, truth be told, he's still a surprise, especially for many unsuspecting Christians who haven't taken a good long look at him for a while. Now, John repeats his confession to ignorance. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom we see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And this refers to the one who embodies God's way in the world. Someone who exudes the Spirit of God from within, made evident by how he lives and to what ends he dedicates his energy and focus. Now Jesus is an enigmatic figure. He comes into view as one who was not known beyond the costume of Carpenter from Nazareth. How he tracks from that image to the image we have in our mosaics is a remarkable story, but it's not exactly crystal clear, is it? Who, what do you see when you look in the direction of Jesus? 
Turning to his followers, Jesus said, Well, what are you looking for? It's a great question. And they replied, Rabbi, where are you staying? Which I think is a bit like saying, Well, we're not entirely sure, but what you teach is pretty compelling. He said to them, Come and see. And so they went. Now the attentive reader then accompanies them in their journey. And at the end of the journey, they see a very different Jesus than the one they see at the beginning of the journey, which is as it should be for anyone desiring to see a larger truth than they already know, looking beyond their own reflection in a mirror, that is. Stands to reason that if we set out to learn something new, the end of our journey will look different than the beginning. But the question behind this is, do we actually really ever want to see something startlingly new? Recognizing, admitting, that I know so very little. And there is so much more to know. Honestly, truthfully, aren't we more inclined to want to see what we think we already know? When Martin Luther King Jr. looked at Jesus, among the things he saw eventually, were freedom and justice. He looked at Jesus and saw freedom and justice. Other Christians, looking to Jesus, only saw their own reflection, only saw their own reflection coming back at them. They saw comfort, status quo. In 1963, King was jailed in Birmingham on, of all days, Good Friday. Over that Easter weekend, he penned one of the most significant Christian documents of the last half century. He addressed his letter that he wrote, not to abusive police officers or racist politicians, but to a group of white clergymen who were urging people to withdraw from the demonstrations, which they called unwise and untimely, quote, unquote. At one point, King writes, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block is not the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, 
but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Jesus invited the newly interested to come and see. Come see who I am and what I'm about. Consider how the Spirit of God is moving in the world. I'm pretty sure that most thoughtful Christians today would agree that King's words were a lot more in sync with Jesus' spirit, purpose, and focus than those of the so-called Christian moderates back in the day who preferred the stability of the status quo in uncivil, unequal America. And both Jesus and King were martyred for stating, among other things, that the emperor had no clothes. Barbara Brown Taylor writes that the hardest spiritual work in the world is to love the neighbor as the self. That's part two of our mission, isn't it? Love God above all things. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sort of sentimental in a way. Take it to heart. And as Taylor says, it's the hardest spiritual work in the world to encounter another human being, not as someone you can choose, change, fix, help, save, enroll, convince, or control, but simply as someone who can spring you from the prison of yourself, if you will allow it. All you have to do is recognize another you out there, your other self in the world, for whom you may care as instinctively as you care for yourself. To become that person, even for a moment, is to understand what it means to die to yourself. This can be a frightening, frightening experience. Frightening as it is liberating. But it may be the only real spiritual discipline there is. I think she's right. I think she's right. And this is what makes it so incredibly difficult to see in another person who is so very different than yourself a true brother or sister requires a mini-death inside of yourself. Something has to go. Something old has to go. Something has to die in order for that to take place. Of course, to love you is to try to see you on your own terms. Not on my terms, on your terms. In your own skin, as it were. And also as someone related to me, despite external conditions. Someone who can trace their lineage to Adam and Eve, as it were, just like me. 
That's among the things Jesus wants us to see when we follow along his way, observing his behavior, listening to his stories, as he makes his way to Jerusalem with his arms stretched wide. Come and see, he says innocently enough, knowing full well how skilled we are at seeing exactly what we want to see and not a lick more. I know what that feels like. It's very difficult to look at people the way Jesus looks at them, isn't it? I mean, it really is. It's difficult. Hard to absorb how he, what he sees when he looks at each one of us. Who does he see when he looks into your face? I tell you, that's a a great little spiritual exercise you can take home with you. Who does Jesus see when he looks into your face? It can be confoundingly hard to open our hearts to see a larger version of the truth. It's hard, but not impossible. (laughs) That's the good news embedded here. Hard, but not impossible. And note, this is no hammer-over-the-head demand. It's an act of hospitality on the part of Jesus. He doesn't say, see or else. He invites you into his home, into his space, into his heart, to come and see. See for yourself. See where I live. See what I do. See what I say. And while you're at it, mix it up with the others who've come along to see as well. Join me in a moment of prayer. Holy God, we are so grateful that we have been gathered here together in part to see you, to see you as you are. Among the things we see is that each one of us is loved and held What a great gift that is to us. It allows us to respond to the gracious invitation that you extend to come along into your home and heart. We would gladly do that. And as we come, we'll bring our gifts. And as symbol of that, we'll give good gifts today in this moment presenting them to you. And you will, we will ask that you will bless us and them that we might bring this good news into the world. Amen.